Hello, everyone, and welcome to Kubernetes Unpacked podcast. My name is Kristina Devochko. My name is Michael Levan. And today it's just us. So today <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna have a cozy, friendly chat uh, about Kubernetes, of course. But uh, we have been um, talking with Michael a bit about how Kubernetes has become boring. But at the same time, there are some other great uh, things happening that can make. Kubernetes easier and more more friendly to use. So that's I think that's what we want to chat a bit about today, don't we, Michael? Yeah, yeah. So so Kubernetes has gone from being the and I, this is I, I don't know why, but I always phrase the new technology. I'm always like the hot new sexy thing. Uh, it's gone <laughs> from that to being like this. Yeah, it's still cool and everybody's still building for it and there are still a lot of tools and a lot of open source and a lot of platforms and a lot of enterprise and a lot of this and the next mm. thing that's building for it. But the core of Kubernetes, the core project itself, it is stable. It is production ready. Mm. It is, you know, not a toy anymore. Uh, so now it, it's almost like Kubernetes itself has become the thing on the back burner and now it's all about the third party tools and the add-ons and, you know, the service mesh and the security centric CNIs and the resource and cost optimization tools and all of these different things. I mean, are you kind of seeing the same thing in the space right now? Yes, yes, totally. And uh, I think that this is uh, quite an important development as well that could uh, be of great value, especially to enterprises. And uh, in general, like how we have heard a lot about Kubernetes being complex, I think like for an open source project of such scale that is used in so many organizations, use cases with different levels of complexity, it is extremely important that its core is kept stable and mature and battle tested like the Kubernetes is at this point. And if we remember how it started with a lot of APIs being deprecated uh, as part of every new release compared to how this is going on now, where this is happening less frequently, we can see that now the focus is more on getting some enhance, enhancements into the core, but it is in itself is kept quite stable um, and without any huge breaking, breaking changes. And uh, what I think is uh, great that is happening in the industry now is that more and more projects are coming out that are helping kind of reduce that complexity of adopting Kubernetes in different organizations uh, and in different projects and kind of making it easier, easier to use and also helping you use it in the best possible way without you using a lot of time on figuring out how to do it yourself. So I can totally agree that I see the same development, which I think is great. Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing right now is making the platform itself far easier to use because without these tools so so here's the thing you know without a service mesh without you know GitOps and this and that you can perform those actions on kubernetes mm. right it's just a matter of like it's 20 times harder which is why all of these different platforms and these these third parties and these add-ons are kind of being built um I think the biggest thing for people, though, right now is that 
there are so many different tools and platforms that it's like, where do you, like, what do you pick? What do you choose? You know, do you go Flux or Argo? Do you go Cilium or Calico? Do you like, what, what do you do? Um, so that's been like the biggest question that I've been asked is like, where do you start? You know, like these tools are meant to make our lives easier and they do once they're implemented. But prior, <laughs> they make everybody's lives a little bit difficult. Yeah, but I think actually this is the question I would like to ask yourself because <laughs> you have been in this space uh, for quite a while and you have been an ind you are an independent consultant oh, currently oh. working with different projects. So you, in every new project, face this challenge so i think that would be great if you could share like how do you start by deciding for a specific project which kind of tools you should use yeah good question so i think for me i have like a personal set of standards that i choose at this point not because mm. one is better than the other, but simply because at the end of the day, they're all kind of doing the same thing. And I know the one platform or tool, so I go with that. So for example, you know, GitOps, right? Flux versus uh, Argo. If a client of mine wants to go with Flux, that's totally fine, we'll go with Flux. But if they're like, hey, it's up to you, I'm gonna go with Argo. Why? Because mm. that's the one that I know, that's the one that I'm comfortable with, that's the one that I've used. You know, Same thing with you know Calico versus Cilium, for example. If a client says, hey, I wanna go with Calico, cool. But if a client asks me, hey, well, what, what, what do you usually go with? What should I go with, et cetera? I'm going to choose Cilium because I know mm -hmm. the project, because I've utilized it before and stuff like that. So I have my go-to tools that I use in each of these categories. But, you know, th at the same time, you know, like let's say you're doing the Calico versus Cilium thing. They're doing the same thing at the end of the day. Let's say you do the, the Flux versus Argo thing. They're doing the same thing at the end of the day. So these tools really are doing the same thing more or less. Like some of them have these bells and whistles and some more bells. and But the, the core of it all, like they're, they're arguably doing the same thing. So what I always say is if you find a, a third party tool or a platform that you're comfortable with and it's being adopted and it's being worked on and all that, go with it, you know, and, and unless you come up with something that you like more. So that's, that's my go-to, you know, like I have, I have categories of tools and then, you know, in each of those categories, I always utilize one or two of those. And of course I keep my eyes open and I play around with different stuff and all that. But yeah, I have my, I have my production ready go-to stuff. Mm. Yeah, and I guess it makes a lot of sense, especially if you have been using some of those tools for a while and other projects, and those are proven to, to have been successful as well. From your personal experience, that's totally understandable that this is also something you would go for, uh, unless there are some specific functionalities that another tool can offer that can bring value to that specific project. Exactly, yeah. You know, and, and it's also a matter of seeing where the projects are going. Um, so, you mm. know, there's always a big debate between Istio and Linkerd, you know, and that's something that it's always like, you got to kind of look and see where the project kind of is and where it sits and why you want to use certain things. I'll give you an example. We, uh, you and I were, were, were talking about this, I think like a week or two ago with the external control plane stuff mm. Uh, mm. for Istio. So like, it turns out that like, that was built, but now it's kind of like 
not being used. So then you have the question of like, okay, you're using this thing and this is why I wanted to use this service mesh, but now it's not being used. But this other service mesh over here, perhaps not as popular, perhaps not as utilized. It has the things that I need. So that's also the other point is that, how can I put it? Like the space that we're in right now, when it comes to choosing these tools and picking these tools, this isn't a, you know, junior level entry level style thing in the tech space. Cause you need to have the mm. experience to look at a project and to understand, okay, what happens if this thing goes away in six months? Cause I think that's, that's one of the biggest and unfortunate things is like, you know, tools get picked because they're popular or whatever the case may be. But that tool may not be maintained in six months or whatever. So you have to understand like, okay, this is the migration path. This is how I move from this tool to that tool, et cetera. Mm. So it's, it's a lot of educated guesses in my opinion. Mm. <laughs> and I think this is actually a very good point that you bring up that I have had also unfortunate experience with, not necessarily with like Kubernetes specific tooling, but in with open source projects in general, because I have been working with the projects where we have, for instance, adopted uh, an open source project, and then they introduce a licensing model. They become an enterprise product and stop further development of a specific, at some specific version uh, that the open source project was lastly released with. And from that point on, you need to pay if you want to get the last, latest security patches, the latest functionality. And if you don't have that plan, if you don't have that long-term vision, okay, what happens if this project stops getting community support, if it stops getting security fixes in place, if it suddenly introduces a licensing model, what do I do? And for instance, like I've been mainly working with managed Kubernetes service like AKS. Uh, there is a good reason for why you would consider consider using a built-in add-on. Like for instance, Istio is coming as an add-on right now as part of AKS. The reason for that is that it gives you also more security, not just reducing the operational burden on you in terms of like installing and keeping it up to date all the time, but uh, you also get some more security on that it will be there for quite some time versus if you would just uh, start using it as uh, as an open source project kind of separately from the, uh, let's say, managed Kubernetes service offering. So in general, having that in mind, like what happens if this becomes outdated or deprecated, mm -hmm. how easy would it be for me to switch? Uh, could help you save a lot of money and time uh, in case that happens. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, this is, this is a question or a conversation that I also have with a lot of clients is, do you want to go the homegrown route or do you want to go the enterprise route? And when I say homegrown, I'm always referring to open source tools. And when I'm saying enterprise, I'm referring to something that you're paying for. You know, let's take, for example, monitoring and observability. You know, you could take a homegrown solution with, you know, Prometheus, Grafana, Jaeger, Logs.io. If you want to throw in an APM tool as well in there, there's a bunch of open source ones. And you can do that and you can, you know, utilize them. But to your point, what if one of them goes away? What if you don't have the engineering capacity to manage and handle all of them? You know, hmm. what if you just want a tool that, you know, is most likely not going to go away 
is well supported, you know, is, you know, uh, you have, you can call or you can email or you can do whatever if you have technical questions. So it's, it's definitely a trade-off. Yeah. And, and um, I don't, I don't necessarily know if I would say there is, in my opinion, a right or wrong answer. If you're a small team, like you're like a real small, you know, you got four people, three people on your team that's managing all this. Chances are you want to go the enterprise route simply because you don't have the capacity to manage all of it unless everybody wants to work 15 hours a day, which nobody does. And you're going to have turnover and this and that, you know, so like going an enterprise route like that makes sense. Whereas if you have enough people to manage the open source tools for you, that would be great. You know, like if you have 20 people or 10 people or 15 people on your team and even better if that project ends up not being worked on anymore and you're like, ah, you know what? I'll fork it and manage it myself. That's, that's a much better place to be in versus being locked into an enterprise tool. Again, if you have the capacity and the people and the engineering power to do it. So it's like, it all, it all comes down to what your environment looks like. And also what your strategy looks like, right? For instance, if you, uh, if you well, if you are just using oh, let's say a single cloud provider, right? Then you may not have. Then you know that it's okay for you to maybe have locking on some of the on some of the features that are available. But what you mentioned also, like if um, if we have the capacity, we can just, for instance, fork it and continue development. But I would say even better if you, as an organization, would like to contribute mm. to open source community mm. as a contributor as an organization contributor and actually use some of that time to develop the project further and also mm. put your name on it as an as a contributor uh, for bringing the value both to yourself and to the community in general that's even better and that would also help keeping those projects alive and kicking for much longer time and reduce that um, that uh, challenges that the volunteer open source contributor are struggling with on a daily basis. Yeah. And, and then the other thing there too, is that could be a really cool way to make it part of your job. Because if you oh. look at Kubernetes, for example, it's maintained by a lot of folks, including folks at Microsoft, Red Hat, etc. And it's literally part of their job description to maintain oh. open source, it's, which is like, pretty cool right like that's something like it's part of your job you're getting paid for it and you have the ability to contribute to this project but even if you're not even if it's not part of your job it's still you know as you mentioned a great way to keep a good project going because at the end of the day when it comes to these third-party tools when it comes to these add-ons that we're utilizing in kubernetes if we don't have anybody to maintain them, if we don't have anybody to keep the project alive, our jobs will get harder. We will not mm. have these tools available. We're going to have to just work with standard. I mean, this isn't going to happen, right? Because there's always going to be something. But like if it were to happen, you know, we we wouldn't have a GitOps. We wouldn't have a service mesh. We wouldn't have cost mm. and resource optimization tools. We wouldn't have monitoring and observability. And then what? You know, because, you know, mm. going back to the, 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 the whole idea of this episode is like Kubernetes is stable. Cool. Great. Now the next step is... How do we manage this thing properly in production? And without these open source platforms and these open source tools, we wouldn't be able to. 
No. Totally. And uh, you, I don't think that anyone would want to end up just to all the time switching between mm. different tools uh, just because one, one tool uh, kind of loses uh, support. Uh, that's why I think this, uh, it, it is great to contribute also wherever, wherever we, we can as, um, as individuals and also as part of the organization, because that will also make our, our life easier when working with Kubernetes, but also it will kind of bring value to, to others uh, as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. So in, in your opinion, when it comes to these third-party tools and these add-ons and stuff like that, if you are using something like AKS, for example, mm. should you go with the Istio add-on or should you manage Istio yourself? What, what are kind of your thoughts around like doing it yourself versus leaving it in the hands of the cloud provider? Because both of them have serious pros and serious cons. Yes, and this is a very, very tough question where a typical answer would be it depends. And it's like, uh, I don't want to always uh, end up saying that because it's like, it, it also is a bit irritating because like, okay, if everyone says it depends, it doesn't help at all on making the decision. So. I can I can try to answer it like based on my experience with the projects where um, where I was working with um, with AKS and I've been working with it like we started the journey in 2017 and at that time you can imagine that AKS was really quite fresh and new and emerging and Kubernetes ecosystem was in general quite fresh as well. And there were not that many add-ons and tools that you could use to kind of make your uh, operational everyday easier. But now uh, it is a totally different story. We have so many, even when it comes to like service mesh add-ons, we have multiple capabilities, multiple choices in, in AKS. We have both Istio and, Link and Linkerd or open service mesh, I think. And um, like if... I were if if I were to choose, I would agree with your previous uh, point as well. It would, depending on how many resources we have in our team, we would need to evaluate because well, Istio is known to be quite advanced in terms of configuration. And uh, now that you're smiling, I think that you could, that this sounds familiar to you as well. Yeah, cer certainly one way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to be very, very polite here, very diplomatic <laughs> since I'm uh, on air. Uh, and for instance, for the project that I've been working with, we didn't have such a complex and large use case where is uh, uh, deploying Istio ourselves would actually kind of compensate the value versus the terms of operational uh, effort we need to make and also the competence that we need to bring in our team because we didn't have people who knew Istio to begin with, right? And we would want to have more than one resource to know that. So we had to evaluate it towards other alternatives. And at that point, there were, there were no add-ons. 
so we would evaluate and choose the tool that would make it easier uh, for us to set it up and configure in order to get the functionality that we needed. Um, so this is something that you could could like look into as a factor when you choose uh, an external uh, tool. But if we think about like choosing an external tool versus choosing a natively built-in tool, yeah. I would again mention like your strategy like in my project we knew that we would just be using AKS this is the long-term strategy we uh, had a plan that we would use Azure for the time to come we would use AKS for the time to come and we would evaluate the built-in resources that are natively available why because one of the reasons is that a natively available add-on would for instance, integrate some other services in Azure, like for instance, Azure Monitor for uh, the observability of the AKS clusters. If you have an add-on that makes it much more integrated, that would help you like inject all that Prometheus metrics in a simple, a simple way that can spare you time and maybe even help to set up all the necessary dashboards and visualization faster and alerting. That, that is totally beneficial uh, mm. for us versus trying to set something up ourselves. Mm. But of course, we would also need to compare it uh, with the cost, which is also an important effort, um, uh, reason, because in some cases, if it is a managed add-on, it may require more costs. So you need to be attentive on that point as well and see how much will it actually cost. Mm. Is it a reasonable price? Or would it be worse, uh, worse, uh, worth to try to set it up ourselves because we have the competence and knowledge already? Right. Yeah. And, and you know, I think this even goes back to the idea of the, uh, and I know this is super buzzwordy at this point, so I really don't want to bring it up, but I'm going to anyways, but the whole cloud repatriation, is that, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Repatriation thing where it's like, you know, the whole idea of this is, hey, we have the expertise already. Like, we're already paying these people to know this stuff. Why are we going to pay the cloud to do it for us? Um, and it could be the same thing, you know, like if you already have a team of 20 people and everybody knows monitoring and observability and you're paying six figure salaries as is, it kind of doesn't make any sense to like, go spend X amount of money with one of these tools and platforms. Mm. But then on the flip side, it's like, do you want your engineers to spend the time managing this platform or do you want them to spend their time creating value driven work? So it's like, yeah, it's, I, like you said, I hate saying it depends, but it's like, it truly does. Like it really, there's no like, I, I'm a firm believer that like there's no right or wrong answer. It's really mm. just a matter of what you and your team are comfortable with. I mean, I've been in organizations where it was like open source was the the dark lords coming in to take everybody's <laughs> stuff away. And then on the flip side, I've been in, you know, uh, organizations where it's like everything they want to do open source everything. So it's like and it doesn't mean that one is right or wrong. It simply means what does the collective decision state? Mm. Yeah, totally. And uh, despite it being so irritating, I think what can help is like knowing which factors or like which aspects you need to think about when you need to make a decision. Like since organizations are so different, you need to think about, like you said, how many are there in the team? What do they 
have competence in? What are the security requirements in terms of open source projects or external projects in your organization to get a new project in? How much time will it take and how hard it is uh, to, to kind of get approval on that, uh, on that part? And many, many more of such factors. And I think an important point here as well is to not do this uh, this, take this decision by yourself and involving actually not only your team that will be working with it every day, but also others who may actually have an, a saying in it, like security engineers, mm -hmm. so that they don't suddenly realize that you have introduced a new open source tool and went kind of behind their back. And now they need to do the aftermath, right? So you need to think about transparency and communication as well to those people who also must have a saying a saying in it yeah because it, it's got to be from a teamwork perspective we uh you know engineers we we no longer live in the days where we're in a basement and somebody's throwing us pizza underneath the door uh, it's, <laughs> it's very collaborative it's very like a collection of teams understanding why when where how a platform or a tool or an add-on or whatever you want to call it is being utilized. Yeah, it's it's got to mm. be that way. So in, in your opinion, uh, I don't know, well, either three or five, you let me know, but from a Kubernetes perspective, what are the top three, or if that's too hard, what is the top five third-party <laughs> tools and add-ons that, you know, like not even the tools themselves, but like maybe categories, right? Like what should people be looking out for? Like one is definitely service mesh. Mm. Yeah, well, that was actually something I wanted to ask you. Like, what? Yeah. There are so many, uh, so many tools out there. Like, what, what, what new tools are you looking for? Like, looking forward to coming out. Right. Right. Like the way I see it, apart from apart from service mesh, um, I think that I I would name at least two and one like more areas, not specifically tools, mm -hmm. but like areas. One of the areas that I really think will be important to have some some tools and additional help from is kind of security. Mm -hmm. Like having those tools, like and this is not uh, a pr promotional like an ad or anything, but like for instance, Cubescape. Mm -hmm. um, this is a tool that I have been playing around with for a while, and I think tools like that that can help you understand how secure your current configuration is, maybe visualize all the different uh, like policies that you have implemented, all the different accesses that different workloads have, could help a lot in an everyday operational life to understand if your setup is good enough or if something should be configured with less privileges. This is like one of the areas that I find to be extremely, uh, extremely important. And another one is like the one that is we're talking a lot about these days, kind of the area of AI mm -hmm. help co-pilot every yeah. everywhere, co-pilot everything. And I think it could be like also bring a lot of value, like getting some of that work of processing, let's say the all the logs and giving you some recommendations on what the e error may be, or you have a performance degradation here, for instance, you need to check this out, mm -hmm. or there is a policy that is blocking, blocking the traffic. And that is probably the reason for why things fail and why a lot of requests fail. Mm -hmm. um, that area and tools in that area could also uh, bring a lot of value 
uh, in your everyday life because we know how it is when there is a networking issue and you need to <laughs> debug it, figure out what, what is going on and you have yeah. like hundreds of pods and yeah. Exactly. You know. <laughs> yeah. And that's, I think, you know, that's one of the things that like service mesh doesn't get enough love for is like, yeah, cool encryption, blah, blah, blah. But like you have the ability to look at network latency. You have the ability to look at hmm. where this packet is going. You have the ability to understand, you know, why is the network failing in a certain way, shape or form when it comes to like, you know, between pods and services. So yeah, it's, hmm. that's certainly a big one there. But what about you? Like you mentioned service mesh. Um, are there any other areas you thought of? Yeah. Service mesh, security, cost and resource optimization. Those are hmm. probably my top three. I would say our big piece and, and GitOps. Those are my top four are, are the, the top four things that I'm, you know, seeing more and more of in terms of like people caring about yeah i would yeah. say those are the top four the the ai thing i think it's important and i think it's you know one of those things to keep going and and to understand and see but i'm i haven't personally been putting too much effort into it simply because i'm waiting to kind of I'm waiting to see how it's going to pan out <laughs> more or less because mm, it can go in one of two ways. It can either go in like the, this thing is going to go crazy or it can go into the, you know, this thing is going to go away or it's going to be very limited. Um, just because of like all like the petitions and stuff that are out right now from like a lot of like the big tech leaders that are essentially saying like AI should have a particular cap on what it can do and what it cannot do. So what's going to, if those petitions go through, it's going to end up being one of those things where it's like a lot of the companies that are focusing on it are going to have to either shift focus or downplay the focus significantly. So I'm just, I'm kind of waiting to see how that's going to go. I am interested in it. It's just a matter of like, how far are we going to take this thing? Yeah, that's a very valid point. And I, I see it as an emerging uh, mm -hmm. area. So not something that you could like get a huge amount of value uh, uh, at this at this point. And oh. also due to all the concerns that you are mentioning, I don't think like personally, I don't think it will go away because mm -hmm. I do see like the value of it being able to process all that large amount of data at scale and giving you some like, you know, summarized recommendations or flagging important things that you could spare time on. That I believe is something that could bring bring value, but we will totally need need to see. And uh, <laughs> one one area that I for, for, uh, not forgot to mention, but I like I feel like I started pitching it in every episode that we have these days. But like, <laughs> while you mentioned cost optimization, I also wanted to mention like the sustainability part of it, because mm -hmm. there is also a lot of pressure with the laws coming out and requirements to kind of being able to report on how much, uh, how efficient your resource usage is and what kind of, how much emissions your software and systems produce. I think getting that information natively available through some kind of extensions uh, would also uh, be something that will come at some point, but it's very, very early days um, at this point. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. The, the AI thing, you're right. It's definitely not going away. And, and the sustainability stuff, I know that's been a big passion and interest of yours. And I totally agree with it as well. There are a lot of laws and a lot of regulations that are coming out that are essentially saying like, hey, you got to run this stuff in a more efficient manner. So we'll definitely see how that goes as well, which will definitely be interesting. Totally. All right. So, Christina, before we wrap up, uh, is there anything else that you'd like to add or chat about? 
I think, uh, yeah, maybe we can round up with one question. I'm not sure if it's like a uh, good roundup question or it will spark even more <laughs> discussions. But um, like, do you see uh, any, like from, from your experience so far, do you see like any features or anything big that is currently lacking in the Kubernetes core? Oh, in the core. Good question. Um, I'm going to say no. And the reason why is because, in my opinion, Kubernetes was built for a specific purpose. And that purpose has been uh, astronomically enhanced. I, I'd actually argue that the core project of Kubernetes has too much going on. <laughs> that's <No>. just me. <laughs> Don't you say. <laughs> you know, I, I definitely yeah. think that where it is, like it could either have less or it could stay as is. Because we're kind of seeing that as well, right? Like pod security policies or PSP that, that got removed because it wasn't hmm. the job of Kubernetes. It's the job of a policy enforcer, whether you're using OPA or Caverno or whatever you're using, um, you know, it's not the job of Kubernetes. So I, I would say that I, I think that if anything, it could have less stuff in the core project. Like, I, I feel yeah. like at this point, we might as well just get rid of Kubernetes secrets. Like, I don't even, I don't even know why it's there. Yeah, <laughs> it's, why know? it's called a secret. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. I feel like we could just kind of just do away with that and just make our jobs easier because we're not using it anyway. So, <laughs> yeah. So what about you? What do you think? Totally agree with you, actually. I think, I think it has a lot already and introducing something big uh, has kind of quite a large risk mm -hmm. also to the rest of the of kind of the kubernetes as a whole so that would really need to be something that has not been mentioned throughout all these years and i i don't see that happening at yeah. this point right. and uh, so you don't see like uh, Kubernetes 2.0 being released anytime soon. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. We'll, we'll see. No. We'll see. It's, uh, you, know, you never know. I've, I've don't been, jinx it. Yeah, yeah I've, I've been wrong a gajillion, million, billion times before, and I will continue yeah. to be wrong uh, more times than that. So we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> you just need to see. I agree. Exactly. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much, Christina. I appreciate the chat. This was awesome. And uh, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Likewise, Michael, and thank you, everyone. <laughs>